letters that I got on the heels of that article were, I mean, I would just sit at my desk crying, just being moved. I mean, it was amazing to me how many people reached out because they felt like I'd helped them see a truth or I told a truth that they'd lived with that they hadn't been able to articulate. I mean, it was just staggering to me. Hello and welcome to Job Speakers, a labor of love podcast devoted to jobs and journeys with guests from all walks of life who have valuable information to convey, fascinating stories to tell, and priceless advice to share. My name is Robert Hendrickson, and for the past 48 straight weeks, I've interviewed 48 guests who do 48 jobs, an accountant, chef, farmer, home inspector, therapist, project manager, fitness trainer, even a horseshoer, to name just a few. I am super excited to announce my 49th guest, Caroline Randall-Williams. I've alluded to Caroline in my previous two podcasts, and we managed to finally sit down and have a fascinating and compelling conversation just a few days ago. As you will soon hear, Caroline is and does many things, but at her core, she is an artist who trades in truth-telling and bending the arc of the moral universe. And as a huge bonus, she has written a great cookbook with her mom, Alice. Thank you for listening today and enjoy the episode. It's nice to see you, Caroline. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Could you uh, summarize for my listeners what you do for a living, please? Could I summarize what I do for a living? That's a great question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I am a writer. I write poetry. I write articles. uh, I write fiction. I write creative nonfiction. I am a professor at Vanderbilt University, and I'm a writer in residence in the Department for Medicine, Health, and Society. And I am a cookbook author, and I like to think in public sometimes. So I do lots of, wear, wear several hats. Let's focus in on being a professor vis-a-vis the, the writing. Can you, if someone were to say, where are you spending your time? Is it half and half? Is it, is it some other percentage? Give us a sense for the, the day-to-day, hour-to-hour investment in those two buckets, if that makes sense. I'm also the president of the Southern Equity Collective, which is a strategic communications uh, firm that is rooted in anti-racism. And so we do everything from conducting equity audits to helping manage hard conversations um, to, you know, doing. So I put that in the mix to say that probably my life is a third, a third, a third. I feel more like I'm functioning at I'm just doing three full-time jobs (laughs) and not sleeping as much as I should or weekending or things like that. So I think that's a little bit more of what it looks like. So on a day-to-day, for example, on Mondays, I try to leave my schedule clear because it's a day to grade things, write things. And I find that I can't be a good writer or a good educator if my brain, if I don't have a day dedicated to incubation, so to speak, separate from a weekend, which ought to be time off, whether it is or isn't sort of depends. It's often like I need like a day that's dedicated to letting my brain percolate. Um, And so Mondays are that day. 
Tuesdays are crazy because they're, I try to do all my teaching on one day a week if I can, or contain it to two at the most. Um, so I tend to teach long seminars because I think my brain works best if I can like do things in blocks. And then SEQ is the, the Southern Equity Collective work is the work that sort of gets distributed across the week because it's sort of built around client needs. And then, yeah, and then my teaching obligations. Um, they also, I have, I had a meeting with a thesis advisee this morning um, that was really good. So that those kind of things pop in and around wherever we can squeeze them in. So, so you have three careers and you do it in the, in the, in the time of one person. So <laughs> Something like that. I have a really amazing assistant. That's she's been great too, by the way, because I know I've had to work with her. To oh yeah. You, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Somebody's got to keep their eye on my calendar and it can't be me. I can't do all of the stuff on my calendar and also keep track of my calendar. I find. Those two things, one something had to give, and that was what gave. <laughs> no, I get it, and that's and that's totally understandable. So let's let's unpack a little bit. You you named yeah. three three things, and you sort of said there in thirds. I'll I'll start with the fun question and go one by one, and that is, what do you love the most about each one? And let's start with writing. What I love the most about writing is. And the word that comes to mind to me is, or the phrase is truth teller, truth telling. I think that the calling of writing is a, a calling to be a truth teller. And I think it's a responsibility that I find like has inherent value to like culture. <laughs> um, and I also, when I say something well, when I get it right, it's so satisfying. It's such a reward. And I actually, what's fun, I've been moving into, I've been doing some songwriting and some poetry on albums lately. And that collaborative spirit of writing when it happens is really amazing. So I have a, my first fiction is being published in this book, 14 Days, which is the brainchild of Margaret Atwood. And she's collected fiction from short fiction from like a whole host of really amazing notable fiction writers. And then somehow I get to be on the list. I think they were collecting the list when my article from last summer had come out, an article that changed my life. So writing one article can change your life. That's another thing I love about writing. And I love, I love the feeling of impacting the record, like the capital T, capital R of having a say in how things get remembered. So I think that's my thing that I love about writing. What do you love about teaching? Oh, well, you want to talk about the teaching is what led me back to writing in some ways, because I when I did, I did teach for America in the Mississippi Delta after um, college and doing the work of teaching was what in that space, in that moment, um, sort of clarified for me that I needed to be doing this truth telling, this witness bearing in writing. but. I think that the teaching I chose, I did teach for America because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do after college, but I knew I wanted to do something um, like fundamentally worthwhile while I was figuring out what I wanted to do. And I knew that teaching was fundamentally worthwhile. And I think watching young people grow their brains, my classes, what I are, what I call empathy exercises, like everything when you're reading a book and trying to understand like why a character did something or 
why this moves one person one way and one person another way. It's all an empathy exercise. So I think watching young people become more fully realized people and having a hand in that, it just makes you sure that what you're getting paid for is worthwhile work, right? I mean, because there are moments, you know, there I have friends that have jobs that are really fun, but then it's like, how do I know that this work is like fundamentally worthwhile? I mean, because if you're making art, it has, you know, that's subjective or which is writing. It feels fundamentally worthwhile to me, but that's a felt thing. It is just true that teaching is worthwhile. Like children need to learn things. So <laughs> that to me is what I love about teaching is that it's like certain worthiness. Yeah. And then we'll hit the third one. Then we'll talk a little bit more. We'll, we'll dig a little bit more deeply with your strategic communications work. I think you called it the SEQ. What about that gets you excited? What do you love about that, that role? So my work with SEQ and getting to go into companies and help them do right by their, all of their employees, do right by their organization by establishing anti-racist practices and by navigating questions about race in ways that are, um, race and equity in ways that are emotionally healthy, safe, productive, like that is just the work of this moment in history, right? Like, I mean, in every direction, um, the last five years, but really then the last, you know, 18 months, we've been going through this sort of cataclysmic clash of cultures within America, right? Like we're having this real this moment of just like unbelievable tension. It's not unprecedented. I think there's a great deal of precedent for it. It's harrowing how much work we've still to do. And it's frightening to see a regression, you know, like there is historical precedent, but for some of the language that we're hearing now, some of the tensions that we're um, navigating, but what there isn't really precedent for is this regression. And I think part of if we have a hope of healing, of restoring these things, a big part of that is going to be like not just individuals having important conversations, but like organizations, corporations making decisions about how they change, how they look at themselves and getting to be on the front lines of that kind of work is really valuable to me right now. I mean, we made the company in order to do that work. So it's like, everything about it's rewarding because it's exactly, we sort of are creating, we're meeting a need that we identified and, you know, and getting to do that every day and then watch our company evolve as we take on more clients and see what, what is needed behind the scenes in so many different fields. Um, that's been really rewarding. I'm curious if, if you agree with the following statement, and that is this, is what you do the same as who you are when it comes to when it comes to the life of working? <laughs> is what you do the same as who you are? <sighs> For me it is. And and that's actually a really helpful question because that then I'm like, I'm a writer. Or I'm I'm definitely some kind of artist, maybe the food. And and to me that 
that creative identity is certainly who I am. It's fundamental to who I am. And I am a writer even when I'm teaching, right? It's like, it's because it is who I am. I am myself when I'm doing these other things. I'm a writer when I'm doing my SEQ work. I'm a, uh, and I bring that sensibility because it, it affects the way I live. It affects the way I share space with people. It affects like the way I make choices not just the choices I make, I think, yeah, what I do and who I am, certainly the writer part, for sure. If we went back, in your case, not not that long ago, um, to when you were a little girl, I do know a little bit about how you came to love food, because I mentioned when we spoke earlier that I, I read the beginning of your cookbook, which we'll talk about. But if we went back to that, Caroline, and said, what do you want to do when you grow to be older? When you, when, we always say when you grow up, which I think is a funny statement, but what would the answer be? Oh, if you went back to that, Caroline, I mean, I would have said I wanted to be an actress because I knew that that was what I really wanted from elementary school, probably still to the present. Um, I think that writing... My, you know, it's funny. My mom always said, well, if you want to be an actress, you know, it's hard to, I mean, and the world is changing rapidly for the good in this way that, you know, when I was thinking about like moving to Hollywood or like figuring out that whether or not I was really going to pursue that dream um, between high school and college, there just didn't feel like a lot of hope in terms of being a young black woman and getting cast and things that felt meaningful to me. Um, and mom was always like, and my mother always said to me, you'll have to write your way in. Like you've to, you'll have to write the movie that you get to be in. And then I think that's sort of how I turned to writing and then writing sort of took on its own love. And then, you know, way as way leads on to way, as they say, I haven't returned to the stage as much as I would like. Although my poetry, I perform, I'm, I'm getting back to the stage more than I, more than ever lately, which is quite cool. Um, but yeah, I think I would have said I wanted to be an actress I might have also said writer and I might have also said princess or like magician. <laughs> like, <laughs> and at one point I wanted to be a, choc a, a, a chocolatier. I wanted to make chocolate. If I'm not mistaken, one of your first books was about a princess, wasn't it? That's right. Uh, the Diary of B.B. Bright, Possible Princess, which is so I say my first independently written fiction because I've co-written, I co-wrote B.B. Bright with my mother um, and she was something that I, you know, dreamed up when I was very small. Remember my mom and I were at a doctor's office and I told her that I was bored and she, we were waiting for, to be called back and she told me, smart children are never bored. Let's make up a story. Um. <laughs> And that's how B.B. Bright began. And then when I was teaching in the Delta, I taught first grade my first year. And it struck me. It was striking to both of us, really, how still few books there were for uh, children of color, especially ones that weren't in some way like politically bent, like were being books for kids of color where being black was like not a part of the problem. <laughs> Or And so that was when we sort of went, maybe we need to turn B.B. Bright into a whole thing, like a whole book, like bring her to life, organize these stories, build this world out. Um, that's how we wound up writing about that. 
I was an English major in school and I had a teacher who I'll never forget. She said, she said, the only way to, to delight or surprise your readers is by doing the same for yourself first. Can you remember the first time you wrote something that surprised you and delighted you? Gosh, I love that quote. The first time that I wrote something that delighted or surprised me. Oh, well, I'll say that this is something that is a, it's not exactly, I think what you meant, but it's what I, what has occurred to me to say is that I recently found this notebook that my mom had started when I was like two, like before I could write really, but she asked me, she would ask me and I didn't, I don't remember her really doing this, but I mean, I could see it, you know, she asked me what my dreams were and then write down what I told her. And I think, and like, and reading it, like clearly some of it was me, like just making up a story in real time. Like maybe part of it was what I dreamed, but part of it was like, I just wanted to tell a story. Um, and I was like delighted and surprised to see my like two and a half, three-year-old mind at work telling this dream story that my mom had recorded, taken the transcribed in the early morning of 30 years ago. Um, <laughs> I, I love how, how children think, first of all. So that makes me smile um, just because the world they see is conveyed in such pure terms. Yeah. Um, but that's that's exciting. Yeah. My mom never did that for me, but that's, okay. <laughs> I'll be okay. I'll, I'll, I'll be okay. When you, when you reflect on your, your path and your stops along the way from a career standpoint, can you speak to how much of it was charged by being aspirational versus practical? Oh, all of your questions. I'm like, gasping after every one because they're so um, important. Um, how much was aspirational and how much was practical? That's So I will say, I have to call out my own privilege here and say that I knew you could make a life in art because I was raised by somebody who was doing it. <laughs> so, and I also had the crazy privilege of, you know, being raised knowing, you know, a long history of like who my family are on both sides, which is something that a lot of people don't have. And one of the people, my great, my great grandfather, uh, my grandmother, Joan, whose cookbooks I'm sitting, um, sitting with even now, her father was um, Arna Bontan, who was a Harlem Renaissance poet um, and also young adult fiction writer. So I knew that you could do that. I knew that you could make a name and a life um, by your pen I think for a lot of people, choosing a life in art is an aspirational act in the first place. Um, and I think for me, it was practical because I had proof that it could work. Um, and so I think I just have to name that, um, that I did not have to, it did not require a leap of imagination or aspiration to think that that could be done. I would say though, but then, you know, you divide within that work making choices like I I had wanted to be a you know an a, a serious stage actress and then I made the practical choice of going to like traditional university instead of conservatory which I still grapple with to this day to be honest so and that was practical but then you know the dream never dies and so like here we sit and I'm you know right working on my first 
a full screenplay, you know, and I'm like trying to figure out, I'm still, still heading that way. And I think that what's cool about it is that having that dream and letting that dream like rest and not necessarily get deferred, but evolve um, into this writing space. And then it sent me back into the dream in a more direct way and it's, and it feels right. So I think there's that. And then practical aspirational. Yeah. I think that it's the practical choices that I have made um, away from my like big picture dreams of wanting to you know be on the news or change, make meaningful change or make art that people really want to consume that's also super fun for me to make. The practical choices have ultimately in my life been yielding this fruit of my original aspirations lately, which is really cool. And I think, like I said, I think part of that is that I I never said, all right, dream deferred. I said, okay, well, I will just give another piece of Alice Randall wisdom, Alice Randall, my mother, um, who says always uh, success breeds success. You know, she was like, if you want these things and you don't know how to get to them, just pick something that you can stand to do and be good at it. And it will lead to something else that you can stand to do and be good at it. And you will build your way back to the thing that you want. And that for me has been true so far, knock on wood, but you know, my mother's advice tends to be quite sound. (laughs) What is the barometer you use to evaluate your professional growth, success, and achievement? How, how do you take measure of that in, (laughs) in what is a creative field? And I'm, I'm curious how much of it speaks to the integrity of the material versus maybe the consumption of it by others and how that balance plays out for someone who's essentially a creative person. I mean, it's funny. I'm a millennial. So my first thought is like Instagram, <laughs> but like, it's, it's, but I, but I, but, um, and I sort of say that serious, but, but kidding, but serious, but totally joking. Right. But in, in all seriousness, for me, it's been that barometer keeps um, shape shifting for me because I think like, you know, when I first, when I got the deal for my poetry book for Lucy Negro Redux, I think that the first run was like 350 copies of the book or something like that. Like it was like the first edition and that seemed like a lot. It was like from this little press ampersand books and it was this little run. And I I think they paid me. I could choose to get paid in a box of my own books to sell or in money. Um, And I got paid in a box of my own books. Right. And that felt like success because I had a poetry collection out in the world and I didn't really, it didn't matter to me how many copies of it or anything like that. I was like, somebody paid money to have my words put into a shape that is a book and it's poems, you know, like that for me felt really powerful. Um, But then it's funny, the same year that Lucy Negro came out, the first edition of it, Soul Food Love came out, my cookbook with my mom. And I think it, and that book did well. And we like, and I remember when we sold that, when we got the contract for that book, it was big enough that I was able to buy my first grown woman purse and pay for a laptop both at the same time when the first 
advance money came in. That felt like a success because that's really living by your pen, right? So there's that. And then there's the, and then the cookbook ultimately won an NAACP image award. And, you know, that's voted for by like black people out in the world who are making these like, who are, and it was very moving to me um, because there were some like celebrities, you know, cause it's like in the self-help book category. So there's like a, you know, there's an other big cookbooks and then one cookbook, one book about like renovating homes by somebody who had her own TV show. And there's little old me still in wrapping up grad school um, with this cookbook that, you know, peers that I really admire and who are part of a community that I wanted to serve with the book saying like, we choose this book for the award. That was really, that was a huge, I mean, I mean, and these are objective successes, right? But I think that that it's funny to me, like Lucy Negro, it wouldn't have made any difference to me. I felt like I'd won, I'd peak one having had the book come out at all. Um, I didn't need any measure of success past that for the poetry collection. But I think with the cookbook, when you have like a big run with a big publishing house, knowing that people like it and choose it makes it not feel like a vanity exercise, I guess. So like the, the success of a thing, if it's being produced on a large scale, um, it does become about who's consuming it and like how many likes it gets, for example, because otherwise it's like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Ex- you feel like a bit of an exhibitionist. You're like, oh, I'm just like revealing myself for no reason to, and like asking other people to like it or bear witness. Like, no, like you want people to want the art you're making. You want people to enjoy consuming it. And then I think the last measure is, you know, for that article that I wrote last year, I wrote for those of you listening who don't know this, I wrote an article in the New York Times last year. Um, it was entitled, Do You Want a Confederate Monument? My Body is a Confederate Monument. And it was just sort of, it was talking about the legacy of plantation rape as written on my DNA and as a sort of stark, tangible, fundamental reason that we can know that these, that, you know, these Confederate men beyond being just traitors to America were also rapists, right? The letters that I got on the heels of that article were, I mean, I would just sit at my desk crying just being moved. I mean, it was amazing to me how many people reached out because they felt like I'd helped them see a truth or I'd told a truth that they'd lived with that they hadn't been able to articulate. I mean, it was just staggering to me. And that was, that was a metric that I didn't even know to want, but that has been in some ways the most impactful. It's just like other people reaching out to tell me they've been moved. I have to spend at least a couple minutes on the cookbook. Yeah, please. <laughs> and part part of it is, as I mentioned, my wife is an avid uh, cook and loves food. For years, she'd ask me first thing in the morning, "What do you want for dinner?" And I remember thinking, "I haven't even left the bed. I don't <laughs> even know what I'm going. I just want coffee." So it, it is in her DNA, and and she just gets so much joy out of seeing people enjoy what she cooks. So I've mentioned to you on my podcast that you'll be coming on not by name. And of course, I talked about the cookbook a little and I've started reading it, as I mentioned. So my first question is a softball one, because I've been hitting you with some pretty deep (laughs) questions. What is what recipe in the cookbook do you do you use the most that you still cook frequently? 
I have two, maybe three. Um, the sweet potato kale and black eyed pea soup. Um, I love that one. And I cook it and I, I probably have some frozen in the freezer right now because um, I make these huge pots of it. The breakfast casserole. I really love that. I cook that all the time. And then the peanut chicken stew. That's the one that might like is the most frequently requested. Uh, and I yeah, I love that. And I roast chickens all the time. I don't always use the recipe that's in that book. That's sort of my standard, but I like, you know, I, I love a roast chicken. Excuse me. I have a roast chicken in the cookbook. So peanut chickens do, if you were coming over and you said, and you and your wife were coming over and you wanted soul food love dinner, that's what I would cook. I'd make the peanut chickens too. Working with your mom. I kind of want her on the show because you've talked about her so much. Oh, you should have her. She's amazing. <laughs> That'd be awesome. I would enjoy it. Let, let ask her. Um, working with your mom on a collaboration like that, what was fun and what was tough about that? Because that's a big, that's a big project. It is a big project. And I think, um, you know, working with family can be hard from one mom and I got lucky, you know, we got lucky in our relationship, but we also, one of the things when, so we went, we got the cookbook deal because mom wrote an article in like August of 2012 called like why black women are fat or black women and fat or something like this. She wrote it as an op-ed in the New York times and Rika Alonik, who was then an editor at Clarkson Potter, which is the cookbook, the, the cookbook imprint at random house penguin or at penguin random house. Now she called my mom's literary agent and said, had read the article and called my mom's literary agent. Cause my mom's a novelist and said, is there a cookbook here? And my mom's agent called her and was like, is there a cookbook here? And my mom was like, well, there could be, except for that I don't really cook for myself that often because she loves to go out to dinner. She's like, I don't cook much and I'm still fat. <laughs> and she was like, but my daughter cooks all the time and she's not. So, you know, it, and it really is like an intergenerational question. Can And so then she, the agent went back and said, can can they co can she co-write it with her daughter? And the, and the um, editor was like, have they written together? Cause that's a big risk for us to take because so often co-writing doesn't work. And we were able to produce the copy of our young adult novel and be like, yeah, we already wrote a book together. No worries. So first of all of that to say that having written the one book first, that book we wrote with a lot less uh, physical like interaction with one another. Cause we were sort of sending chapters back and forth over email. Cause I was teaching full time in the Delta when we were writing BB bright where soul food love, we wrote in big chunks, like over holidays while I was in grad school. And so we did that really collaboratively. And it was one mom and I are very different writers. Like she's like, I mean, it's why she writes novels and I write poems. Cause she can just like bust out a draft of something. She's a marathon writer and it'll have like typos, spelling errors, like whatever else, like these like big dreamy lengthy sentences that are going to get cleaned up in like subsequent drafts. Whereas I'm like, once I put it on the page, the word that's it's go, it's staying there. Like, and it takes me a very long time. And, but I'm, I'm sort of like a sprinter, like a hurdler or something. Like, it's like, we're going to like get this done and then it's going to be done. All of that to say, 
we balance each other nicely in cookbook writing. Cause I'm like, well, I'm just going to bust out these recipes. I'm going to like write all this down, like get it down in order. And she was like, well, I'm going to start the reminiscing process. <laughs> right. And so that because the cookbook's also a memoir. Um, and so that was amazing. And then, you know, she got stuck in with the recipes and then I got stuck in with the, um, with my own reminiscing process once she'd created all of this amazing scaffolding. So it was really beautiful to like get to know one another's writing styles, one. And then two, I think anybody in any field, but especially artists, like apprenticing a master of your craft is such a valuable gift, right? And I think my mom is a master of the craft of writing. And I getting to and so getting to apprentice somebody who not only is a master, but also because it's a a healthy parent-child relationship, like she wants me to surpass her. She wants only good things for me. So getting to learn from somebody who like has no vanity, envy, preciousness about sharing their insight with you and who's like determined for you to get the maximum out of the experience because you're their child. I mean. It was really, that was really valuable. It was amazing. Are you guys going to do a sequel at some point? You know, people have been asking about that more and more. My dream answer is, of course. I don't know what the next book would be because I think that, and I've been sort of wondering about, wondering and wandering into that space because like, you know, Soul Food Love, it was about the recipes, but more than that, it was about like an ethos. It was about this question of, reclaiming healthy food, reclaiming health as a, a part of blackness, like a part of black American history. Um, and not just looking forward, but like also looking backward, because I think one of the things we were combating is this notion that like eating healthily is white or that it's not a practice that we've engaged in as black people, because like it's all macaroni and cheese and candied yams and fried chicken and greens with like tons of meat in them, you know, like, and that's just not the whole picture. Uh, and so I think that act of remembering that way, that's like the mission of the book in a way that I don't know if necessitates another book. Now, what I would really like to do is like cook my way around the world or like cook my celebration food. That's not my day-to-day -day food. Like my lamb bolognese or like my, I, I make, uh, I make larb guy, which is like, you know, fabulous Thai dish, right? Like, it's like, there's like things like that, that I want to explore, but I'm like, I don't know what the theme of that book will be <laughs> except for like at Caroline's pleasure. Like may, I mean, but that, but that could be, but I think I have to be a little bit like cooler before I get to do a book like that. <laughs> I have two final questions and I'll let you go. I know you're busy. This um, is fun. I can, this kind of conversation, we can go over time anytime. If there is a young person out there, maybe a girl, maybe a girl of color, maybe a boy, I don't know that it really matters what I'm about to ask. If they hear your story and say, I want to do that. What do I need to know? What would you tell that person? What would I tell the teacher in me is like, get it right. You have to tell this, you have to tell this the right way. So the first things that I think about are, I'm thinking it's a, it's again, it's mommy lessons. <laughs> um, so there are infinite ways to plan a, 
And I think that when I say that, what I mean is it kind of goes back to that conversation we had earlier about aspiration versus practicality. If your plan A is, you know, first you have to figure out what your plan A is. For me, I thought it was that I wanted to be a movie star. What I learned, you know, in thinking about it and the ways that my mind was drawn when faced with practical choices and things like that is I wanted a life in art that allowed me to like really connect with people um, and be in front of people, which I have now. Um, and, and, and actually, and I'm making my way back into like entertainment space in a way that feels closer to that original version of the dream, but that like, it goes back to there. If you know what your plan A is, you don't have to like have a plan B life. You just have to keep on circling back around. There are infinite ways to get to plan A if you remain open to that. So that's the first thing I'd tell kids is to like hang on to plan A once you figure out what it is and like trust that success is going to lead to success. And then my second thing I would tell you is like, don't leave anything on the table that's in your control. Get the best grades you can. Don't do things that obstruct your chances. Like if there's a choice between getting in trouble and not, just don't, you know, because it's going to be another thing to get in your way. You know, it's funny. My mom, again, Alice, she just gives great advice. It's a teacher and her being raised by a teacher who's also a writer and being a teacher who's also a writer, again, like mentors. I went to Harvard and it wasn't an accident. I worked really, really hard in school. Um, And one of the things, and sometimes I would just not want to work that hard and she'd be, and I'd be like, well, I don't have to go to college here. I could go, you know, wherever else. And she was like, get into that college and then you can do whatever you want because you will have that stamp (laughs) and people will be less concerned with what your grades are at that school than the fact that you went there it's, and it'll make your life easier in certain ways down the road. And so I think it's like about, so the, so that's the last thing I would tell a young person is figure out like what, where your rest spot is and just work your behind off till you get to it. Because I think, I think we tell ourselves that we need more breaks than we actually do. <laughs> like you can just work flat out until you get to like a safe zone. But part of that is knowing what the safe zone is. So I like, I mean, I got to college and then rested. Like I played a lot. Like I really, I was like, you told me I get a break and I took my whole break. Like I played so much in college, but it's because I knew I had to work flat out till I got there. And I had made that deal with myself, with my mentors. Like I knew that I was making that choice and I've never regretted the choice. I've never, I've neither regretted the choice to work flat out sometimes at the expense of my, you know, high school mental health and all of this. And I've also never regretted the choice to play all through college. I definitely have a lot of friends who have way better GPAs and also still had fun, but I was like, no, I promised myself this break. I took it. I'm glad I did it. And so I think that, sorry, that's a lot of advice for a young person, but I hope that it's, I'm just trying to give my lessons, my takeaways. Well, you answered my second question as well. So I'm going to throw in. An oh, wait, what was it? Can I hear what the question well, was? Well, you'll be the first out of 47 straight weeks of guests. And it, it is, if you had one piece of career advice to share and for the whole world to hear, what would that be? Do you think you'd add anything to what you said? Or do you feel like you've covered it? I think the only thing that I would add is to say, um, 
I mean, once you're underway with things, remembering that no is a complete sentence and to budget time to know yourself. No is a complete sentence, N-O, and then know yourself, K-N-O-W, right? And know, like, for example, I know that I need my Mondays relatively clear. I used to, I didn't accept that about myself for a long time. I was like, I can work all day, every day, and I can find time to write like at the end of this day, even if I've done all of this administrative stuff. And like, in theory, I could, but I've never figured out a way to make myself do it. What I figured out how to do instead is get to a place where I can be like, no, this day needs to remain clear so that I can generate the kind of things that allow me to be the the creative, the professor, the professional that I'd like to be. So knowing yourself and giving yourself space to be your best version of yourself, I would add that. I think that's really important. Caroline, this was a pleasure. I really enjoyed our chat. And I I can honestly say I've never read anyone's work and then got a chance to do this, which is to dive in. (laughs) And, you know, we we started with the difference between or the similarities between what you do and who you are. And you're one and the same, in my opinion. And uh, I, I loved meeting you. I love your energy. And I encourage everyone listening to go go check out um, everything you've done so far and what all the good things that are coming. So thank you. Oh, thank you. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you, Caroline. That was a, a really fun interview and it was exciting to hear your thoughts and perspectives. I need to tell you, though, that now I have a new bucket list item and that's for my wife uh, and me to uh, try that peanut chicken stew and experience firsthand what a soul food love dinner is really like speaking of the cookbook i highly recommend everyone go out and check it out it's called soul food love of course the uh, memoirs themselves are worth reading i haven't quite gotten to the recipes but in in one of the uh, in one of the chapters i guess there's a great quote where uh, i believe this may have been written by caroline's mom it says grandma believed identity could be painted on the tongue with flavor uh, that's just great writing and uh, makes me smile just to just to think about it if you want to check out all the other great things caroline is doing just go to carolinerandallwilliams.com and you can use that as a launching point to uh, keep keep in touch see what she's done and and of course see what she's about to do which i'm sure will be amazing so maybe we'll get her back here if i keep doing this for a few years and we'll hear about the next uh, big success Next week, we have another amazing woman guest coming on. Her name is Cindy. She wanted to be an Imagineer at Disney, ended up working to design cars at the GM Proving Grounds, fast forward through some advocacy work, and is now in the process of writing a book about moms and how moms make great advocates. So another hard-hitting, awesome guest uh, come back and join us. You know I always appreciate that you spend time with us and with, uh, with my guests. It's been a real pleasure spending this time with you. Until next time, be good, be safe, be well, and goodbye.